Welcome to Take a Man, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is a dynamic tech innovator who has a proven ability to forecast industry shifts, identify opportunities, and take calculated risks. He is regularly featured in Adweek, Bloomberg, Forbes, and Inc. And the company he built from nothing and sold for nine figures is one of the top 10 largest acquisitions for any Black American CEO and founder. He was appointed by Governor Ned Lamont to the Board of Connecticut Innovations, responsible for the state's venture fund to promote economic development and innovation. We are excited to welcome the co-founder and former CEO of True Optic, Andre Swanston. Andre, welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. It's great to see you. And, you know, I know there's so much that I can learn and we all can learn from you and your experience. One of the most impressive things I think that you've done, you've done many impressive things, was really starting a company from literally nothing in 2013 and building it into the market leader. You sold that company at a nine-figure exit and so forth. So definitely want to talk about that experience, your entrepreneurship, startups, and that type of thing. Let's just start with you. Tell us a little bit about your early life. Who were some of the people or the things that really influenced you to be who you are today? I'm born and raised in the Bronx, New York, the son of West Indian immigrants. My mom's from St. Kitts. My dad's from Island of Nevis. I think the community that I lived in was a, a huge influence. And then even more so than that, or equally so, obviously, would be my direct family. I talk a lot about the impact that my dad had on me just in terms of mentality. When I think about what's important about our youth and our lives, it's what we can take from our life experiences that prepare us for stuff later on. And what's cool about that for everybody is that everybody in the world has a unique combination of life experiences that no one else, even their brother, their sister, their next door neighbor, no one else shares. And I feel like this constant struggle slash opportunity that we have in life is the learnings that we get from those combinations of life experiences and then how we apply them. When you ask about youth, I think about, to paraphrase Jesse Jackson, my dad used to always talk about if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. And the notion that, you know, what's possible for you. And so one of the things that my dad would always do is he would say, hey, you know, see that guy there? So we, you know, some black guy, you know, he's a lawyer. He went to this school or we'd go into a restaurant. Oh, do you know the owner? He's from this country, right? So proven another immigrant can do this, or this black guy can do this, or look what this woman did. I never really understood why as a kid, but I think he was conditioning me to understand that you can do any of these things. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, own a restaurant. Just going back to your question, what were some of the young influences? I think living in one of the most diverse communities in the world, not just in New York or in the United States, like the Bronx is one of the most diverse communities in the world. And then being able to see you know, just what was possible was probably the biggest impact and the thing that I can remember in my earliest youth. Well, it's interesting hearing you tell the story about your father too. I mean, being a father myself, I know you've got children. We think about the role that we have on shaping our kids. I mean, it sounds like your dad really laid the foundation for you in so many ways to open your mind to what was possible. In many ways. Look, what I've come to appreciate more and more in life is that success often 
is not about who is the smartest, not who comes from the most wealth, not what college you went to. Sometimes it really just comes down to who's willing to work the hardest and who's willing to persevere the longest. To me, that is probably 80% of success. And the everything else combined is that other 20% that may refine your chances of being successful from that hard work and that perseverance. One of the things that I think is important in order to motivate yourself to work hard and to deal with perseverance and to be an entrepreneur or to be a business leader, you have to have it. Things always take longer than you want them to. They cost more, they're more difficult, and there'll be challenges and hurdles, or maybe idea or the macro environment changes and you need to alter course. One of the things my dad talked about, my only responsibility in life was to one day when I have kids to provide for them more opportunities than my dad was able to provide for me. And as long as you can do that, then you're success. It doesn't matter if you're a millionaire, it doesn't matter if you're famous, like all that stuff is whatever. But you have one job <laughs> is the evolution of the family. And you talked about like, even though we didn't have a lot, we had exponentially so much more than him and his brothers and sisters had as kids, right? You know, I always had that in the back of my mind. And when that's kind of your North Star, it's easier to deal with setbacks or challenges because you're saying, well, hey, as long as it's not stopping me from doing that, it's irrelevant. It's only recently that I've started to really put all those things, those influences together and think about how they may have shaped later decisions that I made in life or just my perspective or mentality. Those two things, I think, are probably the most influential things for my youth. They sound huge. The impact that we have as parents, for good or for bad, on our kids. Some parents put an enormous amount of pressure on their kids. They define success or failure in a way that can intimidate children and put so much you know, pressure and stress on them and so forth. But what I'm taking away from your dad is your dad you know, was really about contribution. It was really about thinking broadly, thinking about you know, taking risks and those types of things and just trying to leave people and family and the world better than when you got there. I don't want to discount the level of pressure there was as well. <laughs> Yeah, but this was pressure with the perspective. Academics were critical. I was a collegiate athlete, ran track at the University of Connecticut. I was, you know, captain of varsity basketball, track, varsity football, all those things. I can count single digit times that my dad was able to come to an athletic event. If I needed help with homework, you know, that always happened. Those things were more important than sports or other stuff in my household. You get that mentality of what's important. And I think the other big thing that was important, is there's no way you're always going to be right. You'll never get an A on everything. But the biggest thing was always effort. My dad would rather see me get a B. And the teacher said he tried as hard as he came for extra help. He did extra work and get an A. And somebody say like, oh, you know, he's not really applying himself. He's just coasting. And I've talked to, you know, employees and team members and stuff about the similar thing. We're going to make mistakes. There's going to be bugs in the product or we're going to have delays. We're going to have the best pitch and still not get the client. But there's just no excuse for us not putting in the effort. That's right. I mean, you go for it. You put everything you can into it. And then to some degree, there are some things that are outside of our control. See, so you'd started some businesses of your own. You started a nightclub, I think, at 23 right? And it was a yes. very successful nightclub. You did some things in college, you know, in terms of promoting parties and events that were very successful and making money. First of all, I mean, had you always had kind of this entrepreneurial spirit? And then how did you go from the entrepreneurial side into then the kind of maybe more conventional uh, business side? 
always had, I think, the entrepreneurial spirit, not necessarily from a really young age, starting my own businesses or doing things to make money. You know, you hear about these genius kids that, you know, started their own company when they're 14 or 15, like that wasn't me. But I think part of being an entrepreneur is also having the mentality to do things your own way or not accept just what is perceived to be acceptable or good. And so I always was somebody that looked at things differently. I hated to have the same perspective or answer of others. It didn't mean that it was right or wrong, but just something always felt off. If everybody was thinking something the same way and I was just going along. So I always had a confidence in being able to do things a different way, whether it's a math problem or even tying my shoelaces. I think that mentality translated well. In terms of earlier entrepreneurial stuff in my 20s, I think part of it was just evolution. You know, you see all these influences in life. A big one of mine that I just was, I would say, enamored with or just excited about in college was Puff Daddy or Diddy. He wasn't the best rapper, but he was arguably one of the most influential of the 1990s in terms of all the musicians and artists and stuff, the clothing line, and then the diversity of just the, the businesses and the moves that he made. But he was one that in college made a lot of sense. And I knew that I was a popular guy. I was an athlete, it was a fraternity. And I was like, oh, I, I can get 500 people to show up at a nightclub. I've done it before, just didn't make the money off of it. And I was like, oh, there's a way to make money off of doing that. And then after you do that, then you go from parties to concerts. And then you say, wait, I'm making all this money for these venues, right? Where I'm the one bringing the crowd that they're getting percentage. I'm paying them a rental fee or they're getting a percentage of the door. And on top of that, they're making money from the bar. And I'm not seeing any of that. And then now that I've helped allow hundreds of people to discover a venue, they may go there again next weekend. And I make nothing because I'm not there. And so that's when this concept of getting further up the funnel or being able to have more benefit or impact from the value that I thought I was bringing. I think that is probably one of the biggest attributes of any entrepreneur is feeling that they can benefit more from the effort and the work they're already doing or the talent or experience or knowledge they already have. So. And you took the chance to do some of these things. So too, I mean, coming out of college, like I said, you started a nightclub, which was, as I understand it, one of the most successful in Connecticut at the time that you had, it, it was one of the largest ones. So that takes a certain amount of courage to start something. You believed in yourself to do that. You then left though, and you were doing your series seven, I think at the time you had the nightclub and ultimately went into finance. So what led you in that direction? And then what led you to start True Optic? So I would say getting all the licenses and being in finance were two influences. One, early on, you know, I went to Hotchkiss boarding school in Connecticut. And before it was cool to have a tech startup or a tech CEO, everybody wanted to be an investment banker or in banking. That's what everybody wanted to be at that elite prep school or the colleges in the 1990s. If you could go and you could work at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or Beer Stearns or Lehman Brothers back in the day, like you'd made it in life. And so there was always that mentality stuck in the back of my head, just from so many of the parents and of friends and so forth that had known growing up. But then also my mom, I remember coming up one time to Connecticut and seeing the nightclub before it opened and stuff like that. And I remember asking something, she said something like, are you going to get a real job as well? Like, are you going to do something real? Like something that actually required you to use, you know, your economics degree or, or some of these other experiences. And so I think those two things are what, you know, you wanted to have something foundational 
that you can build on, even the most successful nightclubs, you know, two to five year run, right? You're not talking about these things. And so you could expand it, you can open more. Those are probably the two real reasons why I got into finance. <laughs> so then you did, you're going from entrepreneur into business, you leave, you've got this really successful position, you're at JP Morgan at the time, and then you leave to start something from nothing. And I definitely want to talk about that. I've started a company from nothing. It's hard. It's scary. It's up and down and that type of thing. And I know you've had ups and downs before you ultimately made it successful, but tell us a little bit about that path. And what did you learn from that, Andre? If you look back, what'd you learn about yourself? What advice would you have for people who are thinking about their own career paths? I looked back at the decision, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Also one of the dumbest and riskiest decisions I've ever made in my life at the same time, right? I was just starting to make, you know, what a lot of people would consider real money. I was 30 years old when I left. I had, I think, a nine-month-old and a just under three-year-old. I remember my mom crying and said, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense when I said I was going to quit and leave. I'm like, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. But a couple of things happened. I had a unique vantage point. My own entrepreneurial kind of small business owner, let's call it vantage point, in terms of the restaurants and nightclubs. And what I saw there was over the course of several years, the most effective place to leverage advertising dollars to get people to come to a restaurant or a club or a concert shifted from local radio, broadcast radio or local print newspapers, which is what it was from, you know, I'd say 2002 to 2006. That's how you got people to show up places to social media, digital advertisement, streaming radio, other digital means. And I just knew that that's where all the audience attention was going to go. And then the growth in ad dollars was, would be huge. The second vantage point that I had was being at JP Morgan Chase's. I had a lot of really affluent clients who were moving money into something called angel investing, right? So there's that sitting on some money, or maybe I'm not. Some of them were selling out of equities. You know, everybody wants to invest in the next Facebook back then. And I saw some of the ideas that people were putting hundred grand, 500 grand, 50 grand into. And I was like, these are the stupidest company ideas I've ever heard of. This makes no sense. This is going to fail. And so you have this concept of seeing where things are going from your own vantage point, and also seeing that people are investing money in ideas that you think are inferior to one that you could come up with. And that's where the initial genesis came from. I think the third part that I add into that is the ability to execute, right? So I knew I had the idea. If I thought I could raise capital, I thought you know I could manage people, I thought I could sell. The challenge was is that I'm not an engineer. I'm not a developer. I couldn't code. I still can't code, right? So I'm like, well, how do I get this started? I remember thinking one night, well, who's the smartest person I know that can do this stuff? And one of my dorm mates from boarding school who ended up becoming my co-founder and CTO of my company, was a mechanical engineer, mathematician, comp sci guy from Carnegie Mellon. And so I remember just reaching out to him to talk about the concept and then being able to have intelligent people around me that could help execute. I mean, such an important part. You know, you have this myth just of the brilliant CEO or the brilliant founder. And I mean, many times there is that, but it's really that person's strength in finding the smartest people to build a team, right? It really is always about the team. I have been fortunate to be surrounded by some very intelligent, extremely hardworking people. And that is, I would say, the overwhelming majority of the reason for success. 
some of the most important parts of being a CEO are literally recruiting those senior executives that are going to be in the trenches with you. And then they will then be able to bring on and grow their teams. But that core team is critical. And then also, I think, second to that is motivating people to get the most out of them. You have to understand that people are motivated by different things. You know, so I talked about the evolution of the family and that measure of success being my anchor kind of motivation. But other people have their own long-term bigger picture motivations. A lot of people have short-term. I don't think I'm a great interviewer. One of the questions that I've found the most value in is where do you want to be in five to 10 years? Don't say you want to advance up the corporate ladder at Chirotic. Like, stop it. And I'd love when people say, hey, I want to be a mother and I want to go to grad school. I'm like, great. So I now know that maybe work-life balance, flexibility, tuition reimbursement, like these are the things that may motivate you to come and take this job over another job and particularly ones that could pay more than I could pay them, <laughs> right? And so, you know, that's just one example, but I think when you're aligning and one of the things we did the company is also vision boards. And I just think knowing why people will be willing to work a 60 or 70 hour a week for 20 to 30% less than maybe a competitor can pay them was critical. And people then knowing that I had their back and that I actually wanted them to achieve their goals and the best way for them to achieve theirs and me to achieve mine was for all of us to bust our butts and make this work, I think was probably the best thing that I've ever accomplished in terms of this path towards success for Geroptic. One of the most important parts of leadership is really being able to not just cast a vision, but to align visions so the people are working together. How would you define leadership, Andre? If you think about leadership, what are the key parts of a definition for you? I can probably share what I think some of the important qualities of leadership are. I think motivator, course setter, optimistic realism. Tell us about that one, optimistic realism. So what does that mean from a leadership standpoint when you're running your business? I think as a CEO, you need to push for what's possible. And frankly, in many instances, you need to push for what others think is impossible or improbable. You set that course at the same time, you need to be realistic about certain things, you know, economic restraints, you know, how much capital you have, your manpower, macroeconomic factors, and you need to be able to be willing to change the course, be willing to be wrong. I've seen executives that never want to admit when they're wrong. They don't want to change course because it's admitting that the course they set <laughs> was incorrect. You have to have a big enough ego to not be intimidated by being wrong or making mistakes. And I think people trust you more. I also think I made a lot of mistakes, especially early on. I think I set unrealistic goals, maybe on our engineering team. Hey, we got to get this done in four weeks. I know you told me it's going to be six, but we have this client opportunity. And so it's got to be done in four. And not really understanding the repercussions of that in terms of their time or quality of product or other things. I don't know if I've actually even answered the question yet, but those are things that, that as a CEO, it's just this constant struggle of aligning vision and motivation and assessing the reality of where you're at and constantly being able to do that pretty much 24-7. It's complex, too. I mean, I think a lot of people think about the role of the CEO. And again, we've got these ideas that people are fearless, we're going to do this, they know exactly what to do. And we both know, you know, that's not always the case. I mean, a lot of times we don't have the answers, things don't go as planned. You know, we could look at your company, which was a tremendously successful sale. You share with me that 
multiple times the company was nearly out of business, or at least on paper, you'd say, gosh, you know, how are we going to make it, right? So one of the things that I believe was Scott Galloway's talked about, if you have less than nine months of runway, you're already out of business. And I laughed because I never had nine months of runway once. I was always raising capital and halfway out of business, according to that. And there was at least four times that I can recall clearly where I didn't know where we were going to get payroll from. And I remember, you know, scrambling, calling angels and, you know, getting 25 grand here, 50 grand there, 10 grand there, selling out 401k, me and my wife to cover payroll and not taking salary for 18 months and then paying ourselves two grand every once in a while, like (laughs) just to pay bills and stuff like that. But just because there was such a belief in what we were doing. And when you see the effort and dedication that people have, you'll do anything to kind of give them the runway to continue to execute. I knew, I think it was Christmas 2016, so going into 2017, we had a big presentation to do at CES, which is normally the first week of January. And I remember it being about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas day, and I'm wrapping gifts for the kids. And my wife and I, my wife was a chief client officer at Chiroptic. I mean, there was no backup, the whole family, we're all in, right? And I remember being on Slack with my co-founder, who's a CTO. And I remember looking down on Slack and I'm like, oh my God, almost the entire company is active on Slack right now because we're working, some of us are working on the deck, the presentation deck and the deliverables. Other people are trying to get the platform to work that we're supposed to have these big demo meetings. And I just remember thinking right then and there, we're going to win. It's Christmas morning, four o'clock in the morning, and I've got people in multiple time zones communicating on Slack, working on something because we know in a week we have this massive deliverable. Or, you know, I was looking, you get these reminder images in your iPhone every day or every once in a while with like, oh, they just make these random photo books for you. And I got one that was like Christmas Eve and it was like all the different years. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, oh my God. I'm in the office. My wife and I are in the office. Oh, and wait, our kids are in the office Christmas Eve pretty much every year from 2015 through 2019. It seems crazy when I look back at it. Like I'm looking back at this. This was just in the last week or two. And I'm like, wow, that's ridiculous. But that's when you're so locked in, you know, that's what it is. Well, it's incredible. You clearly had a whatever it takes mindset. You can be undaunted. And at the same time, we also have crises of confidence sometimes. I mean, how did you get through those times where, you know, you were going back to the angels and how are we going to make this work? I mean, because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast might be at different places in their lives where they're facing kind of that fork in the road or that challenge. You know, how did you look inside and find that strength to keep moving forward? I've talked about this concept recently. So this concept of being too embarrassed to fail. What I mean by that is people only get embarrassed when something happens that they think shouldn't have happened or they should have been prepared. When you think that you should or you should do better, you get embarrassed. And there's two kind of main people that you would be embarrassed in front of, right? So there is most importantly, the people that have supported you and helped you. So whether it's friends, family members, employees, investors, industry peers, clients. So if you fail, it'd be pretty embarrassing to disappoint those people. And then there's the haters. There's the people that you know, never believed you're going to be successful anyway. 
and you don't want to give them the satisfaction of seeing you fail. Fear of embarrassment, right? Outside of fear of death is one of the strongest fears that you could have, right? And so I think I got to this state of being too embarrassed to fail. It was much less embarrassing, the concept of being out of business or the company failing than groveling to investors to beg for more money. Like that never entered my lexicon of being like something that, oh, I'm too good to do. Are you kidding me? This is what I have to do. And so I think relative from their standpoint, we always were showing progress. Revenue was always growing. The amount of clients were always growing. The industry traction was growing. The macro space, right? Data, streaming. So there were positive things to gleam onto, even though we weren't making enough money to be able to sustain the business. So I think that was part of the mindset where if I just wasn't doing well, if we weren't performing, I don't think there's any passion or anything that I could do to convince people to make more money. But I think being able to focus on what things were going well, and then people knowing how dedicated my co-founder and I and the team were, the fact that we weren't paying ourselves, the fact that you know they knew people were working 70-hour weeks, the fact that we were underpaying staff, everybody was able to buy it and believe that it made sense to risk more of their money, right? There was a reason for them to believe that. And so, you know, going back to your question in terms of people that may be at different stages in their life or dealing with different stuff, it goes back to this concept of effort and ambition and it's infectious. People will support you much more when you have shown that you deserve their support. The harder you work, the more people want to help you. It's hard work and perseverance. And you'd be surprised the people that will gravitate to that far more than probably anything else. Yeah, I mean, people saw you at the end of the day. I mean, so much of everything in life is about relationships. So your team saw you working, that your team saw you fully invested. They were inspired by you. And it sounds like, I mean, it led them to then be willing to go to the ends of the earth to make things happen. And plus the company, they could see that the things that were really working well from a vision standpoint. But, you know, when we spoke, I guess, a few weeks ago, Andre, one of the things you said that stuck with me was, you know, you talked about confidence and ambition. You talked about personal competitive advantages for you. I mean, these are my words. You were talking about how sometimes there's not a lot of difference between two people, but boy, you had ambition. And sometimes ambition's not used in the best way. I happen to think, you know, having good, healthy ambition can be a good thing if it's pointed in the right direction. But tell us a little bit about your philosophy around the critical importance about both confidence and ambition. Hmm. That's interesting. When I talked about the concept of evolution of the family, so that's where the ambition came from. When you feel like you have this lofty goal or you feel like you're supposed to be the one. It could be the first person in your family to go to college. I wasn't the first person, but be the first one to own your own business, be the first one to move out of your town or your state. And I do think it's important for people to have a larger kind of desire or larger goal. And it's easy to allow that to drive ambition. I think confidence comes from preparedness. I think there's long-term preparedness and then there's short-term. The short term is actually the easier part. If you are giving a presentation tomorrow in front of investors, practicing that presentation a lot and putting the effort in over the several weeks or what have you to make that presentation will make you a lot more confident in delivering that presentation, right? So, I mean, that's just a kind of the easy example. I think long-term confidence comes from whether it's education, life experiences, relationships that we've cultivated, things that make us believe 
that we should be able to be more successful at X. Accumulation of all this knowledge and experience that we've had. And then that short-term preparation in terms of preparing the presentation or any other thing, just an analogy. I think the combination of those two things give you supreme confidence. And confidence is relative to an individual. Some people are just more overconfident or outgoing or what have you than others. But everybody has their own level, their confidence potential, let's call it. And I think that that comes from the long-term and the short-term preparedness that people do. And then when you match that with some overarching ambition, and again, it's anything for anybody. It doesn't have to be even business-related. It could be, you know, I just want to start a family or I want to learn, you know, a new hobby or talent or sport or something. I think if you put the preparation and you match it with the real desire to do it, I think that's when people tap into you know, whatever they're really capable of in life. And great things can happen. And especially when we've got the mindset that, you know, we might have ambition and we might be prepared and we might be confident and things may not always work the way that we expect them to. And one of the things I've always loved about Dale Carnegie is this idea that failure can be a huge stepping stone to success and what we perceive to be failure, but confronting that and developing confidence starts with kind of facing the things that we're afraid of and over time kind of gets more and more confident and so forth. I love that when you said it, it's a great mind view. Certainly it's something that's consistent with what we teach in Dale Carnegie, which is the confidence can be a huge competitive advantage, a gateway for our unlocking our potential. I thousand percent agree. Andre, you know, one of the biggest challenges you had starting this company was raising funds. And there are a lot of companies that you didn't meet with and it was very hard. What was your experience? Tell us a little bit about that. And how did you overcome that? There's a lot of reasons why venture capitalists didn't invest in Chiroptic. Several of them were maybe scared of our space. There was ad tech. People went a little sour on it. I think there's some geographical, right? Connecticut, yeah, it's close to New York, but it's not New York City. It's not San Francisco. There's a lot of successful tech companies in Connecticut, but it's not the hotbed venture capitalists in these other markets. People can say whatever they want, but I think the biggest reason was I was a young black CEO. I think a lot of the quote unquote blue chip venture capital firms wouldn't even take meetings with me. Even when they got intros from other you know founders or people they'd angel invested with, or even LPs. I had an LP introduce me to a venture fund that wouldn't take a meeting with me. I think whether it's gender, whether it's geography, whether it's religion, whether it's race, whether it's you didn't go to Harvard or Stanford or whatever school that people think is the appropriate pedigree, I think there's always going to be challenges and hurdles that are somewhat outside of your control as an entrepreneur. And so this concept of being extremely motivated and ambitious and having your own self-confidence and perseverance will allow you to move on without that. And I was fortunate enough to have some angel investors and invested you know, millions of dollars in the company, as well as some smaller venture funds. Those smaller venture funds had also invested in other black companies or female companies or Latino companies or, you know, in Omaha, Nebraska and Lincoln, you know, in places that are not hotbeds for venture capital. So it's funny because you can see people that are just open to, they're going to find a good company and a good business. They don't care where it is and who's running it. They continue to do that. And then the other people continue to have excuses. And then we were able to get some institutional investors, right? That were operational partnerships like TransUnion, and that also made strategic investments in Chiroptic and then went on to acquire us. I think what's interesting is that many of the angels that invested, you know, a lot of them, if you look at their executives at companies, they've been entrepreneurs or venture capitalists. And it's just so funny to see that when you look at their history, they've have a history of 
hiring females or promoting minorities in their companies or investing in other companies or having diverse companies of their own if they're entrepreneurs or being on boards and stuff like that of not-for-profit organizations and various religions or inner city communities. And I just think it's a certain caliber of individual that is able to just look at opportunities on their merits and not be blinded or dissuaded by other things. And I think as a CEO or a business leader, that's one of the things that I've prided myself on. Chiroptic was the most diverse team in the entire space, period. And I think having people from all over the world of various religions and sexual orientation and socioeconomic status and some that went to Ivy League and others that went to literally community college is a strength and something that I'm probably most proud of. Other than being successful, having successful exit, it's probably the thing I'm second most proud of. And I think one of the things that led to our successful exit. Those two things seem connected. I mean, there's just so much data too that just look at diverse companies perform at a better level and a higher level than non-diverse companies. There's a greater diversity of thought and background and experience and wisdom and everything else. And so it seems like those two things are certainly connected in the case of Tuoptic. I mean, that you were able to have a diverse company and that diversity helped drive the success of the business. I think culture, though, starts with the CEO and from the time the company's founded. We never intentionally tried to be a diverse company. It never was a, oh, hey, we have to hire a Black person, Latino person, or female, or we need a you know, transgender person. That was never a goal. We tried to just find literally the best employee for every position. And it just ended up working out that sometimes that was a white male, sometimes it was a Black female, sometimes it was a straight person. Sometimes it just worked out that way. And I think that that, at the end of the day, is the only expectation that people should have is the opportunity to be based on the merits of the effort and the quality of the work and the kind of cultural fit of just being you know, nice people. No jerks allowed, right? That was a motto. <laughs> well, and ultimately, it does come down to the CEO for you to set the tone for the culture and to say that this is what we're going to have. No jerks allowed. If you act against our values, you're not going to be here. That ultimately drives the culture. Great interview, Andre. Really appreciate you know all that you've shared. Let me just ask you kind of one final question. If you look back on your life and kind of where you're right now, what advice might you give to a younger Andre? If you're to go back 20 years and talk to yourself, what might you say? What have you learned? The most important things in life, whether it's life or business or what have you, develop longer than you think. Don't rush. Give yourself time. It's harder than you think it's gonna be to do any of those things that are important. Everybody can't take the journey with you, right? You can't force it. Everybody has their own path and you need to do your best to support and appreciate those that are on the same journey with you. And don't worry about the ones that are not, like don't get caught up in it. I think another thing that I've learned is there've been several people who have just flat out just helped me. And in some ways, altruistically, I believe in goodwill and passing on to others. And so sometimes even maybe my pride wouldn't accept some help that I could have gotten. So if I sum it all up, prepare yourself to work harder and longer than whatever it is you think you're going to have to. Don't expect everybody to be on the path with you. Don't be too prideful to take help where you can get it. Once you're further along on the path, remember to look back behind you and help others to go on their path. I think that's probably what I've learned the most over the last 20 years.
That's great. Well, I mean, it's great advice and it's a great lesson for all of us. And thank you for sharing it. And thank you for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. It was really a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.